You are listening to Lockdown, a security and technology podcast brought to you by Voxiferi Broadcasting. Subscribe now to this and other Voxiferi shows via your podcast client of choice. This is Lockdown, a security radio show brought to you by Red Hat, presented by Richard Morrell, featuring the brightest and the best in the information security arena globally. Make sure you subscribe to the show via iTunes, Stitcher, Pocket Cast, Player.fm, or your chosen podcast client or the RSS feed. For now, here's our latest show. Hi, you're listening to another episode of Lockdown brought to you by Red Hat. My name is Richard Mel. Thank you for taking time out of your day to download this show. This week, we're going to be talking to Bill Thompson from the BBC. Now, this is a show slightly different to a normal lockdown show. We normally be talking cold turkey about security, just as we have before with the likes of Mika Hibbenen or Lance James. This week, we're going to be talking about digital transformation. Everyone's favorite two swear words. It seems that you can't really throw a peanut without hearing from a recruitment consultant who wants to talk to you about either security or digital transformation. Many of them probably don't have a clue what digital transformation actually means. Bill is responsible for a huge amount of technology understanding here in the UK. He's been presenting or co-presenting BBC Click for going on 10, 15 years now. He's the co-founder of the Guardian website. Uh, he sits and moderates on panels across the UK, extolling and worshipping technology. Has to understand it inside and out. So it was an opportunity while I was in London with my wife a couple of weeks ago to sit down and record this show. Now, you may hear some background noise during the recording. One of the reasons for that is we're actually recording this live in BBC Broadcasting House in central London, the heart, the nerve centre of the BBC Global Empire, where all your favourite BBC TV and your radio shows actually come out of. We were sitting a stone's throw away from the BBC News Studio. I could see out the corner of my eye where the weather's filmed. And the the guys sitting behind us while we were recording uh, were actually sorting out the latest news stories to go live on air so if you hear some background noise cope with it because you know you can't get any more cutting edge than recording at the bbc it's like taking colston newcastle so sit back enjoy here's the show we recorded come back next week because i've got some great guests recording today bbc broadcasting house in the science radio unit joined by bill thompson bill say hi hello there this is where BBC Click, where you were one of the presenters, is recorded. That's right. Though, though Gareth Mitchell, the presenter, would rather I was referred to as the uh, studio expert or presenter's friend in BBC terminology. The presenter's friend, the subject matter expert. That's right, yes. I'm the person who, who tries to illuminate the subjects uh, that we cover if we do an interview, try to put things in context. Basically, the great explainer. I sometimes call it the well Gareth role, as in Gareth says something, I go, well Gareth. <laughs> We've, we've podcast before. I mean, you were the, one of the co-founders of the Guardian website. You're the, one of the curators for the BBC Archive. What are the stalwarts of the BBC digital movement? You've seen dramatic change since the first days you were here at the BBC. Talk to me about how digital media is changing things, the whole digital transformation piece. Where, do, where to begin? 
Um, it's one of those things where it changes everything, but you don't necessarily realise it until after the event. So I think the revolution has already happened. Actually, the big changes took place over the past five or six years, and we're now in a post-digital or post-revolutionary era where talking about things as digital stops being as useful because, in fact, there's nothing that is not touched by electronics. There's nothing that's not transformed in some ways by the capabilities of these digital tools. Mm -hmm. So the real transformation is that the things that you used to do, although you may still do them, now exist in a very different context and are supported by a completely different sets of technologies. The, the best way to think about it is to look at your television screen on the wall. There's a sheet of glass on which images appear. That's what television was back in 1936 when the BBC launched its television service. There's a sheet of glass on which images appear. Everything about the process of making those images appear in front of you has been changed in the last 80 years, but your experience of watching television remains. You look at images moving on a sheet of glass. So it is with all media. Whether it's reading a print newspaper or a book or surfing a website or looking at what's on social media, all of those things are now underpinned by a set of technologies that had not been created 10, 20 years ago. And so as a result, any business decisions you make have to be made in that new context. But having strategies around how you embrace digital media, a lot of organisations are struggling. They're struggling because they still think about digital media as somehow being separate from the rest. Uh, people who have the word digital in their job title should be very worried because having that word in your job title means you're working for an organisation that does not fully understand the scale of change and still believes that somehow the old things can be adapted and that the new things have to make way for the old, whereas it's the other way around. You know, if you want to define an online strategy for an organisation, well, actually, what you need is a strategy for an organisation. Mm -hmm. If you want to think about the things you're doing, whether it is as a media organisation, suppose you are, I don't know, a much-loved national broadcaster, and you'd like to make this stuff called television, that's fine. But perhaps you should think about television as being more like an interactive with the interactivity turned down to zero rather than something interactive as being television with added bells and whistles. Mm. You know, maybe you need to shift your perspective so you can still carry on for as long as it's possible to do the thing you're good at doing, but you have a different view of what enables it so you're more capable of taking advantage of the affordances of the new technologies around it. But when we see emerging news, whether it's terrible you know, films t terrible broadcast footage shot on a, a, an iPhone in Dallas of a shooting or in Nice or wherever an editor has got to make these split decisions quickly about how he, does he broadcast this live how does he do it, does he embrace social media there are more and more sources of information that you're going to have to try and gargle with to try and bring to the fore that was always the case if, if you're a good journalist there are always lots of different sources of information what shifted with the growth particularly of live video is that if you're doing something which is breaking news and, and a big news story you may now have immediate access to many different competing live sources and we don't necessarily have the tools to deal with that so if you think about making a, a structured piece a package for a radio show or a television documentary or indeed a package for news that, you know, to go out at six o'clock in the evening has, well, it hasn't really changed that much. There might be more stuff, but actually we're quite good at making sense of all of those different sources. They have always, to some extent, been there. 
If you're now running a 24-hour rolling news channel or trying to curate a web presence and you've got live video feeds, for example, as has happened in Turkey during the, the attempted coup, you know, Facebook Live lit up all those blue dots in Turkey. Now, each one of those was a potential news source that you had to taste, you had to evaluate, you had to decide whether it was credible or not. If you're a news editor, that's an astonishingly difficult job and not something we are yet good at. So you're right, there are all these new challenges. Mm. They, th- I think when it comes to news particularly, they fit into a, a structure that is capable of dealing with them. It's just a matter of finding the right tools. You know, We're used to, say, here in Broadcasting House, just two floors below us is the gallery where they control the six o'clock news and if you look at it there are about 40 different television screens showing all the different feeds coming in and stuff like that mm-hmm. that capability is already there it's just not yet adapted to the things that live broadcast or live streaming over the internet can bring to the newsroom mm-hmm. but i think that is a solvable problem the, 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 the difficult problem is one about establishing credibility of sources, about how do you know that the person who claims to be live-streaming something from downtown Dallas or whatever actually is. You and I both know how easy it is to spoof things like IP addresses and location and video and all the stuff like that. How long until we find that people are actually playing with the, the technology that's not particularly well locked down or secured to deceive the news media in a way which promotes a particular agenda? It won't be very long. It may have happened already. But when we're driving better content, we're interacting more than we've ever done before with the public. We're interacting via either outsourced or in-house social media. Um, I sat down with the guys uh, who do a lot of the stuff for, for the BBC for various shows at The Guardian a few months ago. And they were saying that you know it, it, it's very, very hard to predict stuff. You're having to do stuff live on the fly. And you're flying by the seat of your pants. But you always were, you know. I I used to do lots of phone-ins on Radio Five, Five Live, and you know, you never know what the next phone call is going to be. You never know what you're going to have to deal with. You never know what's going on. So, what's changed? You know, that has not changed. The potential sources have multiplied, mm-hmm. but the, if you like, the core journalistic skill of being able to deal with stuff as it's happening, to make a selection that you feel is editorially justifiable, and to defend that suggestion or you know, fail fast, recover quickly when you realise you've made a mistake. Mm-hmm. These are these are the skills we all have. We just need to apply them in the, in this different area. I think the core point you make though about interactivity is, is twofold. Firstly, the people we're talking to are talking to each other. Mm-hmm. That didn't used to be the case. Mm-hmm. It used to be that you'd phone in and you know there'll be the broadcaster, you know, great name. And that was the way you got to know each other. You couldn't be on the line into Five Live and also be chatting to Dave from Dagenham and, and, and Chloe from Liverpool, whatever, at the same time. Mm-hmm. But now you can be. So so that mixed environment has shifted, and that's a real challenge because you're now part of a broader conversation in which you, as the journalist or broadcaster, are only one part of it. That's one thing. The second crucial thing is the nature of the audience. It used to be that... We knew, so, we knew so little about the people we were engaging with as journalists, we had to treat them as almost an undifferentiated mass. Mm. It's the audience. You had a sense of the person you were talking to, but it was a sense, and there was marketing and audiences and lots of research and different types. Now, we can actually know every person as an individual. Mm. And I think we don't yet have the tools needed to deal with that properly. We don't really know what that means for the way the news agenda is shaped or how we make our editorial choices. That 
we can still think about them as an audience, but it's now an audience of identifiable individuals who have their own background and hopes and channels and ways of communicating and interests. You can't just see it as being, you know, like the, the, the sort of painted crowd in a football stadium. We just do lots and lots of dots with different colours and assume that represents the audience. And for me, that's the thing that really needs to be dealt with quite quickly or we'll end up losing the ability to have direct communication with people because people will expect people's expectations will rise and we won't meet those expectations and they'll just turn away i just came off the back of a two-part podcast talking to one of the technical authorities behind the usa network television program mr robot cyber hacking etc etc you tackle it from a different response in the respect that you're telling the world via bbc click emerging technology what responsibility have you got to get it right well that's okay i take my duty to get it right very seriously Mm -hmm. um partly because one way to have a successful media career is not to be stupidly wrong very often (laughs) so you know it's just the self-preservation in there you know you say enough wrong things people start to notice you would hope uh but also yes People will make decisions based on what they hear from me, that that you get authority by speaking on the BBC. And that duty of care that that the BBC expresses in its editorial guidelines and elsewhere is something we all take very seriously. So I would rather say something bland than something wrong. I will never try to be deliberately just controversial for the sake of it, but if I have a strongly held opinion, I will express it. So I remember some years ago, somebody coming on the show with, a, with the ultimate virus solution that was going to solve all the problems by some sort of clever bit of mathematic, mathematical algorithmic detection. And I basically called it bullshit. Yeah, yeah. And of course, it then vanished very quickly afterwards. Yeah. One of the advantages of being a technology journalist with a computer science degree is I do know something of what I'm talking about. Mm. You know, uh, I could actually go out and do this. I still run websites. I still keep my hands fingers dirty and in the pie and I think that's really important to give me a perspective I'm not always right and the other side of it is to apologise quickly and to mean it if you get something wrong Uh, so if you make a bad call try to understand why and try to improve and also try to minimise any damage that will do some of the stories we do are you know very significant i think things particularly about deploying technology to help in disaster relief zones you know if people put their faith in things that cannot deliver then they could actually be putting their lives in danger so we need to be very careful how we look at these how we choose the people we talk to and what perspective we we put on it Uh, and that duty it's the duty of the journalist it is the duty we all have and i think even in a fast-moving area like emerging technologies, it's one we need to work very hard to, to keep up with. But you've also taken a stewardship, if you will, around digital rights and how people should look after themselves and keep themselves safe. Stewardship's probably overstating it slightly. Um, having been ahead of the curve in terms of online visibility, I have had my own personal website for oh, 20 years now, over 20 years now. Uh, I've watched people make big mistakes and I have not yet made any of those big mistakes. It's always time. It's always tomorrow. Um, But I am very aware, as people have been following me online, that they're not being careful enough. And so it's part of if like my role as a, as a journalist and commentator is to say to people you do realize this is risky and also to say you do realize the people who are building the systems that you're relying on don't really care about you you know so don't assume that they will think about your interests as they build their services if you rely on them 
you know, it's the, and it's stuff like you know. The, um, what came out recently about WhatsApp mm. that when WhatsApp deletes your messages it doesn't actually overwrite the SQLite database records as so long as you're on an iOS device on an iOS device thank yeah. you um, and that's you know that's a small thing almost incomprehensible to the vast majority yeah. of WhatsApp users and how do you make them aware not of that particular bit of technology because that might be fixed, but that these are the sorts of things that are happening all the time. Yeah. So the set of assumptions you should make when you engage with technology that makes you a promise should always be tempered by realistic expectation that that promise will not actually be fulfilled. Not due ma- not through malice, but either through business pressure, meaning they cut corners, or rampant stupidity. The sort of rampant stupidity you enjoy calling out so eloquently and so entertainingly. Ephemeral, ephemeral. I can't say the word, ephemeral obsolescence. It's more the fact that we don't... People aren't paying for these services. They're consuming them free. They have no rights. Well, or people are paying for them in their, by giving up their usage patterns in yeah, their yeah. data. Um, so there is, no, there is no overt financial transaction, and there is no... Contract. Yeah, there's, there's no enforceable contract. Yeah. Uh, there, is, there are terms of use which are written by the supplier, which are take it or leave it, and they're written to be as defensive as possible. You're absolutely right. So we, we, it's a very unequal situation. It resembles the situation faced by ship workers and mine workers in the UK in the early days of the Industrial Revolution, mm-hmm. when the employers would impose contracts around docking uh, wages for you know, the wrong sort of coal being in your in your skip and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. That were absolutely the employer had the employee had no choice about whether or not to accept it. It was the only way to get a job. And then the legal system defended the interests of the employer because they said, "Well, you freely entered into a contract." You never guess you were from Jarrow, would you? I'm just, I'm just, you know, I'm just, just background. I think it's very helpful to to put what's happening in advanced technology in a broader context of of um, social history because that way people have anchor points to it. Because most of us will have had the experience or know in our family someone who has been stiffed by their employer. Mm-hmm. Will to say your social media uh, provider is actually in the same relation to you as that employer was to sure. your grandfather might be quite helpful. But also, this is reputation. What do you mean, reputation? Well, potentially, you know, you're having a conversation with someone, the device is seized under warrant, you think you've deleted the conversation or you've archived the conversation, and it's still in plain text and SQLite on your device of choice. Yes, and and you are then in trouble. And if you happen to be in a country that doesn't respect uh, civil liberties as much as uh, some do, then you could well be in prison or, you know, your contacts are then exposed. No, relying on these technologies without sufficient technical understanding is dangerous but then you and I both know it's as much about operational security as well mm-hmm. you know you shouldn't be relying on the technologies you should have systems in place that ensure that anything that you fear might be compromising is kept safe and properly safe and that's a matter of teaching people how to look after themselves mm-hmm. you know it's as much about you know the analogy here is sexual health mm-hmm. you know frankly if you are going to be sexually active you need to take care of yourself mm-hmm. if you're going to be internet active you need to take care of yourself mm-hmm. it's yeah, it's exactly the same hand in glove but as we see the emergence of digital currencies as we see those currencies being embraced and the back-end technologies like blockchain you know, we said before, neither of us have got a real clue about who the decision makers and on, on what the bells and whistles are going to look like. It's still emerging and still being shaped. And that's an opportunity to shape it. You know, if you don't, 
Santayana said, you know, if you don't, uh, those who don't understand the past are condemned to repeat it. Well, those who don't invent the future have to live in someone else's. Mm -hmm. And the point is not just to let stuff happen, but to speak out using whatever channels you have to shape, you know, as you and I both do in our different ways, mm -hmm. the environment within which these decisions are made. Even if we don't get to make the decisions, we can both make it very hard for people to do foolish things around security. We can both make it very hard for people to willfully ignore the actual interests of their users. And by doing that, we help improve the world for everyone. And also we can offer, because we have our technical background, advice and support to those who would like to do it in a different way. Bill, thanks for taking time to be on the show again. A voice of authority, a voice of calm, a voice of reason. Give me a quick prediction, if you will, about digital transformation. You sit and moderate panels all over the country. You're always out and about doing things. When you sit in front of people who are starting to embrace changing their organizations using digital transformation, do you think they understand the journey they're on? Give me some predictions about things that they should be looking at. Um, that's some predictions. You started with one prediction. I did, but I'm going to hold you to this one. Okay, fine. Um, okay, so an easy prediction is that VR 360 AR will be fantastically significant in a large number of contexts, not just entertainment, but also in business use in the next two to three years because it solves a lot of problems very quickly. So that's just going to happen. The other prediction is that and it's not a prediction the hope is that we will stop making the assumption that this stuff is easy so we'll get away from the thought about the digital natives we'll get away from the ideas that it's a simple adoption curve for any technology none of the technologies that are being deployed in our lives are intuitive or obvious mm -hmm. the assumption that somehow they can be made intuitive is really damaging because it takes away the need to properly understand what it is you're engaging with and it forces pressures on, particularly in the UX sphere, to do things that are massively counterintuitive if you actually want to be efficient. So I think there will be increasing pressure to acknowledge the sophistication of the tools in helping us do difficult and complicated things. Because digital transformation is not doing anything we already haven't done. Everybody's wanted to tie a payroll system to a CRM system to a, a back-end interface, etc., etc. That's always just been called streamlining or efficiency. Yeah, and those things used to be done just by moving paper around more efficiently within the organisation and having lots of clerks who would stamp things very, you know, a thousand times a day and make it all happen. And there were some very efficient organisations out there for you know, decades. They were all massively disrupted by the inadequate capabilities of the early mainframe systems and we were all persuaded to throw away the systems that worked and adopt something that didn't work properly we're finally getting around to fixing some of those problems that's not the digital transformation the digital transformation say from something like the blockchain to say we don't need any of those structures mm -hmm. you know i do not need to share anything with another organization i just need to write the contract as a smart contract onto the blockchain and that is the transaction because then anyone who needs to can get access to it, and if they have the right private key, they can then read it. Once you do that, you throw away the need for enormous degrees of business sophistication. You throw away the need for accounts and payroll departments. That's when the real transformation starts, and we're really just at the start of that. The Oracle Speaker. Bill, thanks for your time. Pleasure. Thanks for listening to this week's show. Make sure you listen in for more great shows from our back catalogue. Subscribe and share the word. Come back soon for more great content. <laughs>